Welcome to Hallel Fellowship, found on the internet at hallel.info. That's H-A-L-L-E-L dot I-N-F-O. We hope you are encouraged by the following recorded Bible study to look deeper into every word that proceeds from the mouth of God and how they were lived out in the life of Yeshua HaMashiach, often called Jesus the Christ. Vayikra, or And He Called, covers Leviticus chapter 1 and goes through the first seven verses of chapter 6 and covered here in the studies we've done before in halal.info slash p24. So one of the key aspects of this is And He Called, because this is a part of what we had just read when we finished the book of Shemot or the book of Exodus. Because you remember in chapter 40, we're left with the scene that the cloud comes in. The cloud comes in and everybody gets out. Everybody has to get out of of the place because the Lord had moved in. Now, with that, you're like, okay, so... Now what is going to happen? So that gets to some of the key aspects of where this particular passage and the companion passages that we looked at today in Isaiah 43, 44, and in Hebrews chapter 10, what those are getting at. So one of the key things when people <laughs> happen upon, you know, they start their their yearly or daily reading program of the Bible, and they maybe make it through Genesis, and oh, you know, the story of Exodus, hey, that's pretty exciting, you know, crossing the Red Sea and the plagues and all that such. Then they get to Leviticus, and I, I know personally for myself, that's where my, uh, my reading plan died, uh, because it just is like, what on earth is this? So one of the the simple ways to go about it, and we'll take a look at it today, is approach Vayikra, approach Leviticus like a parable, just like the parables of Yeshua. Approach it like a parable, it will become much, much easier. As, although one of the things that Yeshua warned about is what? Parables are tough, are tough. So, but it will then help to put things into a little bit of perspective with this, of what these things are. They're not just anachronisms or things that are long past, uh, things of ancient yore that have no bearing to us today. They provide a very visceral, a very tangible, a very bloody and gory look at what's going on. This is a bloody and gory parable that is going on here. And that's for a reason. Because you might remember in the Gospel of John, where Yeshua was saying, eat my flesh and drink my blood. That was a parable too. But it was tied to another parable of the Mishkan, the tabernacle. Tied to that as well. Because what did we just read here? A lot of blood, a lot of guts, lots of gore going on. They think, what on earth does this have to do with anything? It's gruesome. You want to shrink back. You want to run away, hide your eyes so you don't read it because it's just awful, especially, you know, if you 
have your children around a nice petting zoo and they see the nice lambs. And this time of year, you see lambs out in the fields around here. Just the thought that this was going to be offered is just absolutely gruesome. And that is the point. It is supposed to be gruesome. Because indeed, that is what you might say is the cost involved. We, we looked at this back at the end of Exodus. And uh, one of those things that we saw as a part of the Exodus account, and when we go through the Passover remembrance of this coming up, one of the things to remember is the cost. A part of the Exodus experience is a memorial of the firstborn. You are to set aside the firstborn of Israel. Why? Because their freedom cost the firstborn of Mitzrayim, of Egypt. It cost the firstborn. So that should ring some bells in your head that to free the people of Israel, to free the people of God, it costs the firstborn to have the kingdom power free them. So another question as we look at this, okay, so it's a parable. So what are these offerings here today? If we were to see this as a continuum, not plan A God, plan B God showing up in Matthew, um, well, what do these things really mean to us here today? And then that strange sort of thing, which is part of the parable, that strange phrase in there that these offerings are a soothing aroma to the Lord. Uh, Yes, Deborah. When you were just saying that, I was thinking that the firstborn... We really took everything from them because we not only we took all of their their money, their country was in a shamble, and then their firstborn kids. I mean, that stripped them down. We traded pl- trading places. I mean, that's really horrific. And then we took their things and made our God, the one true God, His temple. And we're beginning to learn how to put things on the altar. And so that kind of says to us that it's going to cost us everything. Because at the end of the day, it's really not ours to begin with. And so, wow, that's just like so incredible. Yeah. So you might have seen uh, that I passed around some, especially a cheat sheet for Vayikra. That's a little um, synopsis of what the offerings are that will help as we go along and they talk about, hey, this is a sin offering, a guilt offering, something like this. We got more of those over there where the bulletins are. So it just helps explain what these offerings are involved. And on the backside of the thing is a um, summary, an outline, just a very rough outline of the book of Vayikra. Also from two perspectives, just uh, thematically the book, but also each of the Torah portions and what thematically they get at. Um, Yes, Rose, uh, you have a question or, or a comment here. Thank you offering. So the first offering is a thank and you And I offering. have in my notes, it's, uh, it's an Ola offering, and uh, it's, like, it's like a thank you, God. It's like giving God a hug. Yes. That's what I put in my notes. It's like giving God a hug. And it's, it's and really... He appreciates it when we're thankful. Yes. It's really good that you put it that way, because one of the things to remind us about with the Mishkan, with the tabernacle, is... Why are we here? What is the whole point of the tabernacle? We talked about this a few Torah portions back when we were at the mountain. 
and Mount Sinai. And then after Sinai, when we were, got the instructions, the blueprints that were on the pattern that was shown to Moses up on the mountain. And we saw that a key part of what the sanctuary is, is to enter his presence. So we got all the instructions about the building of it, what the construction of it is, what the various furniture that goes into it. And now we saw at the end of chapter 40 of Exodus, hey, Moses, everybody else, get out. The cloud of the presence is moving in. And then you see in Leviticus 1, he's calling out from the tabernacle to to Moses and everybody else out there. Hey, this is how you get back in. This is how you go in. And as you see, just with this little schematic that we have here, and you have the gate, and the first thing you encounter when you get through the gate is the altar. And we saw the description in this particular Torah reading of all the things that happen at the altar, the things that go up in smoke, the blood that's poured out at the base of it, the things that are poured out in one direction versus another direction of it. You know, they think of like on the east side. So that would be between what? The altar and the holy place and most holy place. And then the north side. Uh, uh, Pamela, you have your hand up. Uh, go ahead, please. Yes, Can you hear me? Yes, go ahead. Okay. Uh, I just wanted to say, when people say, I'm sorry, that's cheap. Words are cheap. But when you have these offerings, it shows the seriousness of it, of uh, a guilt. Yeah, indeed. Because <clears throat> you see that with the last instruction about that if you steal something, you have to replace it plus 20%. And when you say, I'm sorry, that's a, kind of one of those war- warnings and reminders there about the importance that uh, what it costs. So with that, another part of this tabernacle is not only that we are to enter his presence, but his presence is in the midst of us. Remember, we encountered the presence of the Lord up on the mountain. Mount Sinai. Now you have Sinai is right here in the midst of the people. The presence of the Lord is in the midst of the people. So just like you had the boundary around the mountain at Sinai, here you have a boundary around the presence of the Lord in the midst of the people, traveling along with them. So you have that cloud, the cloud that first descended on the top of the mountain. In the cloud that's descending upon the the tabernacle here, and the interesting thing that many people have noted is that the book of Leviticus and a few chapters, eight chapters of Numbers, are basically like a big parenthesis around <laughs> where you see the cloud first come down to the tabernacle, and when the cloud lifts, and then they start moving again. So what you see in between with Leviticus and Numbers, the first eight chapters, because in chapter 9, it talks about the, the cloud lifted up and then they started going. So, yes, Anne. Yeah, um, I don't have it exactly where, but it said the poor or 
certain people can bring fine flour and it can make an atonement atonement for sin. So where do you, how do you God makes an allowance for the poor or those that Yeah, cannot. correct. And so uh I mean how much more can he can he give? I mean, he gives everything, and he allows even the poor to just bring fine flour. Yeah, indeed. Yeah, and that's one of the things that people have noted over time is the the um, purification offering that uh, that Yeshua's mother brought was that of a poor person. So, so one of the things that we note in these particular passages that we've seen so far, like in Exodus 25, verses 8 through 9, about let them construct a sanctuary for me that I may dwell among them according to all that I'm going to show you as the pattern of the tabernacle and the pattern of of all the furniture, just so you shall construct it. And I was hammering home pattern, 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 because it helps keep us from going off the, off the rails when we get to the book of Hebrews and what we just read in that passage to um, not miss the point of <laughs> where the writer was going with that particular passage, which is incredibly profound. And we see also... And Solomon was praying at the dedication of the temple. Uh, but will God indeed dwell on the earth? Behold, heaven and the highest heaven cannot contain you. How much less this house which I have built. So the indeed picture is, is that this is not actually, you're saying, the whole totality of the presence. This is just the creator of heaven and earth making his presence known here. So you're not like the, any of the pagan nations where this is the temple of this deity or this is the temple of that deity and that deity is there. No. This is just a small little snippet of it. But even just the small little snippet of it has to be taken with incredible reverence and awe. Just like when Moshe encountered God up on the mountain he was just shown his back, and only just the back even had uh, that kind of um, reverence. Uh, Pat, did you have a comment or a question? No, my only comment was that when you look at all of this, what God is looking for is the heart attitude, not just behavior, but the heart attitude that comes with it. Correct. That's, that's exactly what we're getting at with this and why we're talking about this being a parable is because one of the lessons of parables is what we say, look for the punchline. Don't get lost in the weeds of the details. I mean, you've seen people write long tomes about the uh, various things like the rich man and Lazarus and go off into whole theologies about that and miss the punchline of the parable. Parables always have a punchline to it. And you could say the punchline of this particular passage is what we just had seen of the of the tabernacle is that that i may dwell among them that is the punchline of the parable of the tabernacle that i may dwell among them so 
we see that also pictured down in the prophets with this particular name that shows up, Emmanuel, or God with us, God among us. And that that being a particular foreshadowing of the Messiah's presence in there. So as we move on forward into the courtyard and see some of the things that we have seen and the sacrifices that are offered, the various offerings that come on with that, some in very important vocabulary to remind us about as we go forward with this, because sometimes people get sidetracked with the terms like clean, unclean, and miss the point of what is going on here. With korban, that's the, that's the term that you have from Hebrew, which is um, translated as offering or gift. And kodesh is what's translated as holy. And tahor is what's translated as clean, often. And tameh is what's translated as unclean. Now, another way is to say that would be korban from the verb that it comes from in Hebrew is that which approaches. So you, uh, karev is where it comes from, and that is to approach. So a karban is the thing that approaches. And kodesh comes from kadash, which means to separate. So kodesh is that which is separated or to be separate from it. And tahor is you could say that that is the way it is used is something that is fit to approach so when you're saying korban to approach and tahor is the thing that is fit to approach and the reason why we're saying like tahor being fit to approach and tame being unfit to approach is because when you see how they're actually applied in situations where like what is how could something be actually like unclean in this sense? It's like fit to approach versus unfit to approach. Because some of the things that are unfit to approach are things that just happen in humans. They just happen in humans. They happen for men. They happen for women. So it's like you've done nothing to actually just being alive. You're going to end up in the Tame situation. So... With that, you're not saying that this is like something that you've done to go wallowing in the muck. That's just, you are a human and this happens. So the things that are fit to approach, the things that are unfit to approach. And you see this, this especially when we saw in some of the offerings where it's like, if you had contact with some of the holy items and you weren't aware that you were doing it and something came in contact, then you go through this, quote, decontamination um, ritual that goes in through that. It's just to reinforce again and again and again through the architecture that the place of where God's presence is, that's the kadosh hakadoshim, the holy of holies. It's separate, 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 very, very separate. It is in so separate from us that only one person can go in there one time a year and only with a cloud, his own cloud that he puts up of incense in front of him, that he goes into it. So it's very interesting we're talking about a cloud that 
came in to the tabernacle, a cloud that is over the tabernacle, cloud that would rise up and move, and so they would follow the cloud. But then you see, what is the first offering that you see in Vayikra? The Olah offering, which means which goes up, the thing that goes up. So a part of this parable of the offerings here of this is that you are to go in, be consumed, and go up. And you are going up where? To the cloud. Remember this cloud that's right above the tabernacle? So you are going up into that. So that is a picture that just like when you see later in the prophet king David is saying how he loves to dwell in the presence of the Lord, it's like he just wants to go in there. He can't waltz in there himself, but his desire is to be in the Lord's presence. And that is what all of these korbanot are all about, is to take us from the outside in towards there. And you see that happening through the offerings that are brought in and the blood going in ahead of you. So with Kodesh, about separateness and to sanctify, to make set apart. So with these particular offerings that we're looking at, then we'd like to jump down into where we'll hit into some new territory here today of Isaiah. Now, this is a stepping stone because we covered this last year, and, but this is a stepping stone to where we're going to go next in Hebrews chapter 10. Because one of the things, just to refresh your memory, we read the passage here of Isaiah 43 and 44. Historical context is this is right around the time of the exiles. So you see this talking to people that are being given heaven's time out of correction in the land. They're not able to bring these offerings. They're not able to bring these offerings. But you see how the Lord is addressing them about the burden. You're, you're being burdened by the Lord. The Lord is a burden, a terrible burden. But the problem, though, is, is that what was the reason why they ended up in the exiles to begin with? It's because they were putting burdens on other people around them, specifically about <laughs> related to the sabbatical years. And key to those sabbatical years was the release of captives or the slaves, the indentured servants that they had. They were supposed to give them freedom. And as we'll go on, we'll see that lesson of the freeing of indentured servants was saying, hey, Israel, I freed you from the house of bondage. So you, when you have people who are indebted to you, then you forgive their debts. Let them go when you must. When you are instructed to let them go, you let them go. And there is a specific time period as to when their service contract, whether you wanted to keep them on or not, would be over. And you had to discharge their debts. You had to hit the reset button for the, those people, let them get a fresh start. 
Uh, yes, Rose, you have a, a comment or a question. Every seven years. Yes, they didn't let the land rest. That's why they went into captivity for 70 years for every year. Yeah. Uh, that they it was it was all a part of the same heart symptom. Why they wouldn't let the people go? Why they wouldn't let the land rest? Why? Because they were greedy. They didn't trust the Lord. Especially when we talk about every time we talk about the jubilee and the shemitah cycle, there is a space of three years in there where you're like trusting in the Lord, because there is that little switch over when you're getting to the end of the six years into the seventh year and then back into the first year where you're not getting crops for up to three years so there's a lot of trust that goes in there i mean you know we just got through a three-year drought cycle and what were we praying for rain 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 we prayed for rain well we got rain we got a whole lot of rain yeah we're gonna get some more rain that comes along but one of the things that you see with that is the trust in there. The trust that these things will come in their time. And then also to trust if they don't come, that there's perhaps a reason for that. And for the people that were sitting in exile <laughs> over there in Babylon, they were having to wonder why did we end up here like this? So... You see the, the prophets that were speaking to this, the Ezekiel, Isaiah, and Jeremiah spoke to them before the exiles about these conditions and what was causing them. So one of the things that had to be emphasized was boundaries again, that they as the priesthood, they as the priesthood were not actually running the show. They were ministers. They were servants of the king. They were servants of the king, but they thought that they were the king. So they had to be dethroned. The shepherds were not guarding the sheep. They were scattering the sheep. So they weren't helping the people. They were oppressing the people. So... Thus, when you hit the reset button and bring things back, you have to look and see what caused that situation to begin with. Where did things go wrong? Which brings us over into Hebrews chapter 10. Now, one of the things that you see in this particular passage, there is a phrase that comes up in this particular passage of the first 18 verses a shadow of good things to come, but not the very form of things. Now, if you might recall, how does the letter to the Hebrews start? Chapter 1. What is one of the key parts of that? Key part in that is that Yeshua is what of the Father? the direct representation, the direct image of the Father, direct image, which should hearken your mind back to Genesis chapter 1, that he made a male and female. In the image of God, he created them. So the image of the Father is the Son. The direct representation of it is the Son. So thus, 
that when you're saying that just like the pattern of the tabernacle that was shown on the mountain is a pattern of the things in heaven, how much more then, which is the whole point of what the letter to the Hebrews is, how much more then is the Son of God a pattern, a representation of the things in heaven, but the actual real things, the real things that are happening in heaven. The Mishkan, the tabernacle, was giving you a, a taste, the parable of the things that were going on, but the Son of God would be actually bringing these things through to fruition. The various things that we read about in this first section, the first Torah reading, Vayikra, talks about, and this will bring atonement, that will bring atonement, this will bring atonement, that will bring atonement. Those things only effective if the person's heart, their mind, their connection with God is absolutely solid and their desire is open. And we'll be getting to how we know that in this particular passage and the passages that are quoted here in these first 18 verses of chapter 10 in Hebrews. And one of the things that we see in this particular passage where it says why it was that the first, it calls it the first in reference to temporal and the tabernacle, had to be carried away, taken away to establish the second, the body of Messiah, is just what we had talked about. The tabernacle was the pattern shown on the mountain. It always was a pattern shown on the mountain. The Messiah is what the tabernacle is referring to. It is it. And you see that referenced again and again, especially with... Uh, Pamela, you have your hand up. Uh, go ahead, please. Okay, uh, thank you. Um, I, I read it in the footnotes of my Bible that um, the first that was abolished was actually um, the, the Levite priesthood of sacrifice. And then the second to be established was the Messiah priesthood. And then in the Jewish Ritkadashah, it said it was not revealed the first. Um, the Messiah's priesthood was not revealed while the Mishkan still stands. So you had to like take down the Mishkan before you can reveal the Messiah. But the difference is that the sacrifice system. Yeah, that is a uh, pretty common view that you have of when it talks about the first and the, the second, that you had the, have the, um, the priesthood involved. And that and you'll even see it where it talks about the first being the first covenant, which talking about the... Um, uh, Larry, you have your hand up over there. I've run into this problem with the saying, a shadow means that people think it's not real. I forget exactly what the exact circumstance had to do with the Torah, maybe the tabernacle. Pattern. So said, <clears throat> the, yes. The, the shadow actually proves the reality well, because you can't get a shadow when there's nothing there. Right. And, and, and see, the, the, the pattern is 
that's why I kept hammering that home earlier that the tabernacle is a pattern of the things that are in heaven. So that is what we are seeing because people would latch on to the tabernacle. And you see it even referred to in the prophets. You know, they said the tabernacle of the Lord or the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, latched onto that as being something special in and of itself. Well, the passage as it goes on refers to, hey, I am going to tear this thing down. I am going to bring it, uh, the ichavod, the glory being departed, was going to happen on that. Or as the prophet Daniel puts it, the abomination of desolation was going to happen. So it is, you know, you see an earthly crude example of that. When we have an embassy of the United States in a foreign country, Okay, it's in business when people are there, when the ambassador is there or his deputy or whoever's in charge at the moment is there. It is open for business. When they evacuate and they leave, what is it? It's a building. It's a building. Or in, in some countries, it's uh, some private home that they've rented. But that's it. That's all that is. So when the ambassador has left, or his deputy, the one in charge, has left, it is no longer an embassy anymore or a consulate. It is a building. And then how much more is it with God's house when the occupant leaves and he removes his presence from it, that then it is just a building. And if you're thinking then that the empty building left to you desolate ding, 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 from the Gospels, then you have a problem of the glory being departed, as it had several times before in Israel's history. So thus, if the glory departs and the temple comes down, you're faced with a big problem. Because if you have put all of your trust in the korbanot's, as they are offered physically to actually do something for you, if you cannot offer them, what's then going to happen? And you see that, uh, that people reached a crisis after the temple was destroyed in 70 AD, and they also faced a crisis over in Babylon when they were doing their time out and the temple was destroyed. What do you do? What do you do? You're not offering Yom Kippur, you don't have that offerings there. So what happens then to your sins, transgressions, and iniquities? Are you just pile it up and just hope you don't die in the interim or what? So that has been a problem when you treat the Mishkan, when you treat the temple as something more than what it is, a pattern that was shown to represent something more, something greater that is happening so thus and it's very interesting that you see the language that is used in in um, hebrews chapter 10 when it talks about for those who draw near like uh, they can never make perfect those who draw near and the interesting thing is that draw near which the greek version of that is uh, proser prosokamai 
And prosokomai is the same Greek word that is used in the Septuagint for karbon, for drawing near. For this idea then that you're being associated with, for those who want to draw near and you go up to the temple and it's not there. You go up to the tabernacle and it's not there. So then what do you do if you want to draw near? If you have now placed your faith in the korbanot being your only way to get in, how then do you approach? You see what was happening with the, with the prophets when they were in exile, Daniel, his heart is saying, okay, Lord put his name there in Yerushalayim. So what did he do? Three times a day, his heart was going out towards where God had put his name, saying, hey, I trust that this is where he's going to do it. Even though it's not an operation, Daniel knew. Daniel knew what happened to it. He knew what happened to the city and to the temple. Yet, for him, it was like the temple was still in operation because you know the one who set it up was still on the throne and the appeals were going up so then you see this reference in there of these quotations several quotations interestingly enough in this passage just looked at two sections of it one of which is from the new covenant prophecy that we read quite often that's over there in jeremiah chapter 31 verses 31 to 34 there's several quotations from that in the letter to the Hebrews. But the other one that we see are several quotations from Psalm 40, especially the passage in there, you know, I have come to do your will. So one of the good things to take a look at is to actually go to Psalm 40 and read it through, because I think you'll start seeing here what was known and what was understood by those who had their hearts closely connected with God about what was really going on with the tabernacle, with the temple. So Psalm 40. So this being Psalm of David. I waited patiently for the Lord. He inclined to me and heard my cry. He brought me up out of the pit of destruction and out of the miry clay. And he set my feet upon a rock, making my footsteps firm. He put a new song in my mouth and a song of praise to our God. Many will see and fear and will trust in the Lord. How blessed is the man who has made the Lord his trust and has not turned to the proud, nor to those who lapse into falsehood. Many, O Lord my God, are the wonders which you have done, and your thoughts toward us. There is none to compare with you. If I would declare and speak of them, they would be too numerous to count. Sacrifice and meal offering you have not desired. My ears you have opened. Burnt offering and sin offering you have not required. Then I said, Behold, I come. In the scroll of the book it is written of me 
I delight to do your will, O my God. Your your law is within my heart. I have proclaimed glad tidings of righteousness in the great congregation. Behold, I will not restrain my lips, O Lord, you know. I have not hidden your righteousness within my heart. I have spoken of your faithfulness and of your salvation. I have not concealed your loving kindness and your truth from the great congregation. You, O Lord, will not withhold your compassion from me. Your loving kindness and your truth will continually preserve me. For evils beyond number have surrounded me. My iniquities have overtaken me so that I am not able to see. They are more numerous than the hairs of my head, and my heart has failed me. Be pleased, O Lord, to deliver me. Make haste, O Lord, to help me. Let those be ashamed and humiliated together who seek my life to destroy it. Let those be turned back and dishonored who delight in my hurt. Let those be appalled because of their shame who say to me, Aha! Aha! Let all who seek you rejoice and be glad in you. Let those who love your salvation, say continually, The Lord be magnified. Since I am afflicted and needy, let the Lord be mindful of me. You are my help and my deliverer. Do not delay, O my God. So, yes, amen indeed. So when you're thinking about what the approach is of coming into the presence of the Lord, This is the heart of the one who's bringing the offering in, the one whose offering is going up, the one whose offering, the blood going in there, in towards the presence of God. So thus, when you're looking at this situation of what the Lord is doing with this, then you turn back to where we were at in Hebrews chapter 10. And you see that it ends with a with a pretty um, sobering passage that a lot of people get really perplexed about because it says, "Now there is forgive. Now where there is forgiveness of these things, there is no longer any offering for sin." So okay, you think, "All right, that's that's bad," but then it goes on. Um. Verse 19, therefore, brethren, since we have confidence to enter the holy place by the blood of Yeshua, by a new and living way which he inaugurated for us through the veil that is his flesh, and since we have a great priest over the house of God, let us draw near again. There it is, that same word again that we encounter the, yes, korban, the karav, to draw near. Let us draw near with a sincere heart in full assurance of faith, having our hearts sprinkled clean from an evil conscience and our bodies washed with pure water. Let us hold fast the confession of our hope without wavering, for he who promised is faithful. And let us consider how to stimulate one another to love and good deeds, not forsaking our own assembling together, as is the habit of some but encouraging one another, and all the more as you see the day drawing near. 
Now comes the incredibly sobering part. For if we go on sinning willfully after receiving the knowledge of truth, there is no longer remains a sacrifice for sins, but a terrifying expectation of judgment and the fury of a fire which will consume the adversaries. Anyone who has set aside the law of Moses dies without mercy on the testimony of two or three witnesses. How much Severer punishment do you think he will deserve when he has trampled underfoot the Son of God and has disregarded as unclean the blood of the covenant by which he was sanctified and has insulted the Spirit of grace? For we know him who said, Vengeance is mine, I will repay. And again, the Lord will judge his people. It is terrifying to thing to fall into the hands of the living God. So, one of the things that, and it goes on in, t- in talking about for those who were, um, had been enlightened at one point and then shrunk back from it, shrunk back from the only way that there is actually any actual effectiveness of Yom Kippur is your trust in what the Lord is doing. Do you see what the Lord is actually doing? and what the Lord's direction is. When he takes away supposedly what you may think from the outside is the only way into the presence of God, you're left with a crisis now. If you have put your trust in the physical things, the building, the furniture, etc., 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 you're stuck. But if your trust has always been in the one that took you out of your own house of bondage and has delivered you into the place of rest, then you're not perplexed by the falling down of a building. Yes, you cry, and you cry because of what has happened to drive it to that point where the glory has departed. But you're not perplexed by it because the open sign is still on with the dwelling place of God. And thus you can see what is actually happening with it. So whether the temple is in operation, whether it's not in operation, you still see that things are operating. There is still, heaven is hearing, heaven is forgiving, heaven is discharging sins, transgressions, and iniquities with something that was better than any offering that could have ever been brought by any person, even any high priest that ever served. Because you're talking about heaven stepping in to deal with the situation to the point where you see it emphasized. We talked about this last time with Isaiah 53, where it pleased the Lord to crush him for our iniquities. Our iniquities crushed the Mashiach. So thus, when you talk about the enemy, that all was put upon the Messiah. But like this passage we just saw was, if you reject this, there's no other way in. You're not going to pull vault over the walls into the city, so to speak, into the presence of God. There is just 
no other way in. Uh, yes, Deborah. So then we are, well, I don't know if, if we are particularly, are the enemy says in Isaiah, remember he says, I, um, to be still until he puts his enemy under his feet. That must be the rulers and those of darkness that are here. Like we had this morning, we talked about uh, in uh, the rulers of darkness. Yes. So that's what's happening right now. God is Basically putting those, the, right now, that's the what's kingdom going on spiritually. Death. Yeah, this is being put down right now. We're not finished yet, but no. he says, until I make earth my footstool and bring down those enemies. There are rulers like when they left Egypt, these, those rulers <laughs> are now still ruling and reigning here on it. Oh, earth, yes. Right? They're, they're so very those giants active. are well alive in our banking system, our school system, our medical system, every one of our systems therein crouched. And now they've really yes. made themselves so apparent that it would be quite difficult not to see that they are there. Yeah, I mean, these, these powers are oh, truly are. great. And as, as we talked about earlier, it is something that has pervaded humanity from the beginning all the way down. It takes different forms, and so you have to recognize it and be discerning to see its power when it pops up in each generation. Yes? Um, when Yeshua was born, we see in Revelation 12 what happened. It's, Satan's like, yep. it's time to Came go to war, to and grabs a third of the angels. War. And that heavy attack that happened at his birth, that same energy, you better believe it's here now. I mean, it, just in your face, two fingers flying up at the creator energy. Um, so it's not to be surprised that the principality of this air, this is, I think, uh, hearing you say that, did it please him to crush him? I, I would never thought I would be sitting here saying the same thing. Yeah, I'm so glad that he was crushed. He was buried, but raised again and poured out his spirit. For our transgressions. For our transgression, but also that I would have his spirit to overcome the principality of this air. Yeah. In this world, and the butt whooping that's coming, and when I take off this flesh, yeah. I want to be a part of that army. Let me tell you what. Yeah. And, you know, one of the, the things in popular media that has been really, really... Uh, probably you could say counterproductive has been the depiction of the forces of evil as something grotesque because indeed angels of light and something very attractive from the garden all the way forward the attack has come with a smile you might say and that is the most effective because if someone is soft-spoken, kind of happy, talking like this, I mean, to counteract and just say, hey, um, you know, you're there with the happy smile, and, but you're speaking something actually horrifically terrible for all humanity around, that is a very difficult thing to actually discern beyond the surface, the way it looks on the outside, to see what is actually going on inside of the person. Which, again, with the parable, back to our Torah reading of today, one of the reasons why you're seeing the liver and the kidneys up there is because when you see in the um, Psalms, when it talks about, I, in my inward parts in Psalm 51, I mean, literally it says in my kidneys. Because that idea of your inward parts the stuff that's inside of you, the stuff that is a, 
the part that people don't see, but you need them to live. That part has to be offered up too. That part has to be offered up. Not just what's on the outside, but is what is in the inside. That has to be offered up as well. So that you are, as the saying goes, all in. You're not just partly in, you're all in. Because like we talked about before, hot, cold, you can sort of deal with those. But the lukewarm part is toxic. Because just like in your company, the quiet quitter can take down your entire operation because of just, you know, dissipation of your resources, dissipation of your morale, just totally erode it down. So hopefully as we've seen through this and we continue on through Vayikra, you'll see that this parable of the Mishkan is really teaching us about what our daily approach is to heaven, that you know, we come in to and approach the presence of God. All that's a part of us either goes up, we are carried in to the presence of God through the Mashiach, our inward parts may have to be get offered up, And it is gruesome what it cost for our freedom. We think even just in the small little part that's come in our particular country for the freedom and to roll back that terrible stain of slavery and oppression upon you know, people that were dragged over here to this country. It cost hundreds of thousands of lives, hundreds of thousands of lives to deal with that stain. So you see that these things in history can be horrific costs to unwind them. Yes, Carrie, go ahead, please. Um, just some thoughts, kind of bringing things a little closer to home, which yes, pun not intended. <laughs> but what I was thinking about is um, there's something that's common probably in almost all households is that um, <clears throat> very often there's one person that does like a lot of the housework, for example. Mm, yes. And so there can be one person that cleans all the dishes and puts them all away and gets them out of the cupboards when it's time to cook and, and fix food and everything. And what can happen when there's one person designated for all of those tasks is that the other people in the house can become entitled mm, to yes. leave messes because mm -hmm. they're not coming face-to-face -face on a regular basis with the cost of time and resources and energy related to leaving such big messes. And I think for me, that's kind of where the sacrifices come in. And like scripture, I don't remember where, but scripture says he prefers obedience over sacrifice. Mm, yes. I think part of what that's talking about is the fact that when we obey, we don't need to sacrifice. The sacrifices are really for us to understand the cost of the destruction that we've brought with the things, that, the sins that we've committed. Um, when we're not being brought face to face with those costs, we don't learn the lessons as clearly and as concretely. And we'll, we will grow arrogance and pride and entitlement and we will continue to repeat those offenses 
against him and against our neighbors yes until we're confronted with that cost yeah and when we when we uh, see in an upcoming uh, torah reading here in vaikra we'll see uh, one of the examples of not only realizing the cost which is under underscored with the offerings but underscoring the holiness or you could say the separation involved and the process that we have to go through to go from where we are to the presence of god and we see that even two sons of aharon thought they were entitled to be in the presence of god and didn't realize or say didn't learn the lesson of the the separation involved and that yes they too have to be all in not partly in but be all in and realize that they are invited in not just going in on their own willy-nilly and even we as we just read in this passage here in in hebrews chapter 10 that we can go into the presence of god with confidence because of the blood of yeshua but confidence does not mean arrogance to think that we are just entitled to go in because you know realize the cost and realize the great mercy and favor of heaven in giving us this way in even as blessed as we are by it yes rose go ahead I want to give you a, a picture of a thought mm-hmm. that, uh, for me, what works for me is when I go in prayer, actually Christ is in front of me, mm-hmm. and I'm back here behind him, and, and I'm, I'm like kind of peeking around his shoulder, uh, but, but Christ, Christ goes in before I even think about that I could ever face God head on. So. Uh, it's just a it's just a picture that for me that that's how it works for me is that he's always out front i'm I'm back here <laughs> mm. Amen. you've been listening to a discussion at Hallel Fellowship. If you would like to hear more discussions or if you have any questions, visit the website at halel.info. that's h a l l e l dot i n f o halal.info